It's my privilege to bring the Word of God to us this morning, and I'm trusting God that He's going to help me to stand here for the next 45 minutes or so, and um, um, and be clear-minded and, and say the things that He has given to us this morning. So would you stand with me, please, and turn to Exodus chapter 34, and let's read together. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you so much that we can trust you, that you have declared yourself to be the Lord, the Lord. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We ask that you would help us to believe these things are true more fully. That you would lead us to rest and trust in you, to desire you with all our hearts to welcome you into every area of our lives, to withhold nothing from you, to be satisfied fully in you, and to pursue you with obedient, faithful hearts. We ask you to do this in the name of the Lord Jesus, our our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Who is God? Really, what what is God most like? When you think about God, what thoughts typically are the first to form in your mind about God? These are questions that aren't easy to answer, but they're important to ask. Because right thinking begins by thinking rightly about what God is like. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what we want to do this morning is exercise by faith our thinking about God and let him through his word inform our thinking. By way of review, something that we're all familiar with because we've been taught it so many times here is the gospel. What does the gospel reveal to us about the heart of God? Well, in the gospel, we see that God is, say it with me, the supreme good. And so, we should trust him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But, unfortunately, because we are idol worshipers, our sinful hearts don't trust him, naturally. We believe lies about him. But, thankfully, Jesus is the double cure. 
So when God transforms our hearts, we begin to see him as he truly is. And because faith is trust in the promises of God, the more we see him as supremely good, the more we we believe what he says. And finally, since love is the obedience of faith, the more we believe his word, the more we love him and the more we love like him. That's the gospel. And in the gospel, the heart of God is revealed to us. Do you believe this? I believe it. But Lord, help my unbelief. If you're like me, at times you struggle to believe it. Particularly when we sin miserably in the same way again. And when we suffer or when we bear with those that we love who are suffering, these are the times that try men's souls, really. What kinds of thoughts about God rush into the spaces of your mind in those times? Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says this, Although we may not doubt God's love for us, we might tend to believe it's a love infected with disappointment. He loves us, but it's a flustered love. We see him looking down on us with paternal affection, but with slightly raised eyebrows. How are they still falling so short after all I've done for them? We picture him wondering. The Puritans would say that we are now sinning against light. In other words, we know the truth and our hearts have been fundamentally transformed by the truth and yet we still fail. And the shoulders of our soul remain drooped in the presence of God. Once again, it's a result of projecting our own capacity to love, to love onto God. We see him through our human eyes as we are. And we don't know his truest heart. What keeps us fully in what keeps us from fully and full, uh, freely enjoying the pleasures and the presence of God is our failure to trust his heart of love toward us. When our conception of him is wrong, when we believe to think things about him that are not true, we effectively exchange him for an idol of our own making. And our affections for him are deadened. What we need is God to inform our understanding and to correct our misconceptions. And so to help us do that this morning, we're going to examine a single, very important text in the Old Testament where God reveals things about himself that we don't want to miss. We want to see what God reveals to himself about Moses and to the nation of Israel at a critical time in their history. At the very time that God was making a covenant with the nation to fulfill all of his promises all of his promised blessings that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at that very moment, the people of Israel were still uncertain as to whether they could even trust him. And it's right here of all places where God reveals, where he unveils his spectacular goodness. Let's take a look in Exodus 30, 
34. We'll actually back up a little bit and let's do a quick flyover of the story that leads us to our text in Exodus 34. In the Old Testament, we see the heart of God. In the larger story of the people of God, beginning in Genesis 11, God chooses the family of Abraham out of all the nations, and he promises to rescue the whole world through them. And then Genesis ends with this family enslaved in Egypt. So we move into Exodus and we see the heart of God as the story unfolds. In the first movement in Exodus, in chapters, the first 13 chapters, um, we see God rescuing them from slavery. And in the second movement, God leads them to Mount Sinai where they camp out for one full year. During this time, God invites the nation into a partnership with him called a covenant so that he can shape them by his values and his character so that they could then represent God to all the other nations. That was his purpose for them. Then when we come to Exodus chapter 19 to 24, we see Moses mediating this covenant in a ceremony between Yahweh and Israel. God speaks to Moses from a mountain, telling them to remind the Israelites of their deliverance and promising to bless the nation if they keep God's covenant. Then Moses ascends the mountain into a cloud of divine presence on the seventh day, and he remains on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And it's here that God gives Moses the terms of the covenant on two stone tablets and all the plans for the heavenly temple so that Moses can build the tabernacle. And now we come to the part of the story where we really want to focus in on the details of the plot as it unfolds in Exodus 32 and 33. Follow this. Moses disappears into this thick cloud up on Mount Sinai. And then the Israelites, they don't know where he's gone or what's happened to him. And so what do they do? They do the logical thing. They make a golden calf. Meanwhile, up on the mountain, Moses is interceding for the people. He is saving them from destruction and he's compelling God to remain faithful to his covenant promises to Abraham. Moses comes down from the mountain. He sees the people down in the camp frolicking in their idolatrous play. He shatters the tablets, pulverizes the calf, and calls the sons of Levi to execute the idolaters among Israel. And then he goes back up on the mountain to atone for the sins of the remaining Israelites, followed by four more acts of intercession. Moses intercedes by offering his own life for the whole of Israel, and then he goes back down the mountain. At this point, then God says that he's not going to accompany the people anymore. Instead, he's going to send a messenger to go with him. The people go into mourning, and then Moses meets with God in the tent of meeting, and he intercedes for them again. And he says to God that the people are not going to leave. They're not going to continue on the journey unless Yahweh's presence will go with them and guide them. So, God tells Moses that his presence will go with them after all. And Moses continues to intercede and he asks Yahweh something very, very important, having everything to do with this idea of God's presence remaining with sinful, rebellious, stubborn people. He asks Yahweh to show him his glorious presence. The very presence that he's asking 
God to go with, uh, to remain with them on their journey. So then Moses goes back on the mountain again, and on this time, God reveals himself to Moses and shows Moses his goodness. Moses asks God to show him his glory. God says, I'm going to show you my goodness. And this is what he says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Is this how Moses expected God to characterize himself in light of what just happened with the golden calf? Not to mention all of the spurning of God's kindness and protection and provision that he'd endured from this people leading all, going all the way back to Egypt. Is that how you would have expected God to respond to these people? Why did the Israelites respond to God's continued faithfulness which, with such blatant unfaithfulness. Well, it's because they did not understand him. They had misconceptions of God and they fundamentally did not trust him. This is the heart of the issue for them and it is the heart of the issue for us. They thought at best that he was short-sighted and at worst sadistic inciting Pharaoh to increase their burdens rather than delivering them from slavery back in Egypt. They thought he was fickle and unreliable, delivering them from slavery in Egypt, finally only to trap them against the Red Sea so that Pharaoh's army could slaughter them wholesale. And then leading them into the wilderness so they could die slowly from starvation and thirst. That's what they thought. They didn't understand his holiness and justice and they didn't grasp his grace and mercy. They were terrified of him when he spoke directly to them. They didn't want him coming anywhere near them. And then at the very moment that God was solidifying his covenant with them, they thought he had killed their leader and abandoned them. If you see echoes of your own heart responding to God in your difficulty, don't be surprised. Because that is, in fact, the response of our natural hearts to God. What's interesting is that when, Mo, when, Aaron, uh, when they asked Aaron to make a, a god to lead them, they weren't trading in Yahweh for an entirely new god. They were redefining him. They were reshaping him into an image of their own, of their own liking. A tamer, more familiar image. One that they could predict and control. So God instead of destroying them, reveals himself to them, shows them his goodness. And now we want to look really carefully at this text and break it down. Because right now we come to the mountaintop, literally, of, in our story. Short of the incarnation itself, this perhaps is the high point of, of all divine revelation this particular text in Exodus 34 is quoted more times in the Old Testament by the prophets than any other text. 27 times this is quoted. 
It's not a one-off descriptor or a peripheral uh, passing comment, but in this text, God reveals the very center of who he is. One Old Testament scholar said um, that this is an exceedingly important, stylized, quite self-conscious characterization of Yahweh. It's a formulation so studied that it may be reckoned by uh, to be something of a classic normative statement to which Israel regularly returned, meriting at the label credo. So the creed of Israel, that's what this is. And what is this creed? It's not what we would expect. What do you think of when you hear the glory of God? That phrase, the glory of God. You might think of the immense size of the universe. You might think of a thundering, terrifying voice from the clouds. But Moses asked God to show me your glory. And God says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. His goodness. But isn't the glory of God a matter of his greatness, not his goodness? God then goes on to speak of showing mercy and grace to whomever he wills. And then he tells Moses that he's going to place him in the cleft of the rock so that as his glory passes by, he won't be destroyed. And the Lord does pass by, and once again, he defines glory as a matter of mercy and grace. When we speak of God's glory, we're speaking of a God, of what makes God God. When God himself sets the terms, he surprises us into wonder. Our deepest instincts expect him to be a thundering, gavel-swinging, judgment-relishing person. We expect the bent of God's heart to be retribution to our waywardness. But then, Exodus 34 taps us on the shoulder and stops us in our tracks because the bent of God's heart is mercy. His glory is his goodness. His glory is his lowliness. Like it says in Psalm 138, Great is the glory of the Lord, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. Compassion and graciousness are the first words out of God's mouth right after he proclaims, I am. The very first words. He doesn't reveal his glory as the Lord, the Lord, exacting and precise. Or the Lord, the Lord, tolerant and overlooking. Or the Lord, the Lord, disappointed and frustrated. His highest priority and his deepest delight and his very first reaction, in other words, his heart is merciful or compassionate and gracious. This Hebrew word for compassionate is rahum. And the word appears in the noun form as compassion, rahamin. And both of these words are related to the Hebrew word for womb, rahem. And so compassion in the Bible is centered on a person's core. And it invites us to imagine a mother's tender feelings for her vulnerable infant. Rakum conveys deep emotion, sometimes translated deeply moved. And so like in the story where King Solomon judges a dispute between two women who have just given birth, and one of the babies sadly dies, and the woman, both women claim that the living baby is theirs. As a test, Solomon says, cut the baby in two and give each mother half. 
the true mother is deeply moved and would rather have the other woman take her baby than to see it die. Her compassion reveals that she is the true mother. So this word rakum isn't just an emotional word, but it also conveys action, like when God hears the cries of the Israelites suffering in slavery. He rescues them from their bondage. He cares for them as he leads them through the wilderness. And yet despite his continued rakhumin, they turn away from his compassion to other gods and they do violence to others rather than show compassion themselves. So what does God do? He scatters scatters them among the nations. But in the darkest moment of Israel's history, we come to Isaiah, where Yahweh compares himself to a mother full of rakhumin, for her baby. And he says this, can a mother forget her nursing child or have no compassion? Even if she forgets, I will not forget you. So God is full of motherly compassion and he will rescue his people. And as we read on in the book of Isaiah, we see that he's going to do this by entering into the suffering of humanity. And this points forward to a time when Jesus comes on the scene. He is God's deep oiktirmos is the Greek word, compassion. And he becomes human. As Jesus cares for the sick and the outcast, he's deeply moved by human suffering. He compares himself to a mother hen as he gathers his people into his embrace. In his ultimate expression of oiktirmos, He suffers human death to rescue us and bring us to God. And Jesus himself uses two words to describe his own heart in Matthew 11, 29. And those two words are gentle and lowly. Jesus calls us as his followers to imitate that same life of compassion and to be moved by the pain of others and to embrace the hurting and to relieve suffering in the world. And in this way, we embody the compassion of Yahweh. Jesus says, be compassionate, for your heavenly Father is compassionate. So when we're in pain and when we see others suffering, we can be certain that God is deeply moved and he is there to meet us with his compassion. The second word that God used to describe himself is gracious, the Hebrew word kanun. And it's related to another Hebrew word ken, often translated grace or favor. And this word has a fascinating history throughout the Bible. One meaning of the word ken is delightful or favorable. Like uh, in the Psalms, the skilled poet is said to have lips of ken. He can craft beautiful words that bring delight. Or A dazzling piece of jewelry is an ornament of ken. In Proverbs 1.9, it attracts attention and favor. This is why ken is often used to describe um, a gift that is given with delight or with favor. In these cases, the word ken can be translated as grace. Like in the story of Esther, when she approaches the king and she asks that her people be spared from death, She calls this request for ken. And because the the king delights in Esther, 
he favors her and grants her her wish. So giving a gift of favor is ken because it's motivated by delight. And the most extreme kind of ken in the Bible is showing favor to someone instead of giving them what they deserve. Think of the story of Jacob who cheated his brother Esau and after 20 years he wants to return and make things right. So what does he do? He comes to Esau asking, may I find Ken in your eyes? Jacob isn't asking for what he what is fair, but he's asking for favor. And surprisingly, that's what Esau gives him. He chooses to, de- to delight in his brother and show him grace. Ken requires a generous spirit with people, um, which people sometimes have, but no one in the Bible, no one shows more Ken than God. Like when God rescues people, the Israel from slavery and then he quick, they quickly turn away from him and they worship the golden calf. And yet he forgives them and promises to stay with him. This is Ken. This is grace. Forty times in the Psalms, people cry out to God to show them Ken when they're in distress. When Israel is in exile, Isaiah looks back at God's abundant Ken in the past and boldly declares that one day God will show Ken to his people by delivering them and all of creation from death and ruin. So the authors of the New Testament describe God's grace with this word. The authors in the New Testament describe God's grace with the Greek word charis, which means gracious gift. It's like when we're introduced to Jesus in the gospel and we're told that Jesus is God's glorious grace become human, sent into the world of people trapped in darkness and death. Because according to the apostle Paul, we are like living dead God handed humanity over to destruction, to the destructive consequences of our flesh. But God, being rich in mercy, and by his grace, charis, he rescued us. He's talking about how Jesus' life and death and resurrection is offered to us as a generous gift of life that is more powerful than death, And as with any gift, we must receive it. Now we can see why the biblical authors talk so much about God's character throughout the Bible. We can, when people are willing to own their failures and ask God for mercy and grace, he has consistent and generous response. God gives the gift of himself, his life and his love. This is what it means that God is gracious. The third word we're going to look at this morning in Exodus 34 is slow to anger. This might surprise some of us who think that the God of the Bible is mostly angry, always striking people down for their sin. But actually, God's anger in the Bible is far more nuanced than that and way more interesting. In Hebrew, the phrase slow to anger literally means long of nose. What does God's patience have to do with the long nose? Well, 
First, we need to look at the, at the common biblical Hebrew way to say that someone is angry. It is to say that their nose burns hot. It's like in the story of Joseph. When Potiphar thinks that Joseph tried to sleep with his wife, his nose burned hot. It's usually translated, his anger burned. It's describing how your face gets hot when you're filled with anger. And so in Hebrew, the main word for anger is either nose or heat or hot nose. And this is why a patient person is called long of nose. It takes a long time for their nose to get hot. Like in Proverbs 19.11, where it says a person's wisdom is their long nose, that is, their slow anger. In the Bible, God gets angry numerous times, but he doesn't have a nose. This is a metaphor using our experience of hot anger to describe how God feels when he witnesses human evil. Just like you would get angry if you saw a child being bullied on the playground, so God gets angry when, he, when humans oppress each other and ruin his world. In the Bible, God's anger is an expression of his justice and his love for the world. But he's slow to anger, which means that he gives people lots of time to change. He doesn't have his finger on the trigger. It takes much accumulated provoking to bring out his ire. Unlike us, who are often emotional dams ready to break, God can put up with a lot. And this is why the Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger dozens of times, like Pharaoh when he enslaves the Israelites is given 10 chances to repent and let Israel go free. But after the tenth refusal, God destroys him in water. And we read in Exodus 15 that this is an act of God's hot anger. But not once are we told that God is provoked to love or that God is provoked to mercy. Why would this be? Because it's God's anger that requires provocation not his love or his mercy. His mercy is pent up. It's ready to gush forth at the slightest prick. We tend to think of divine anger as pent up, spring-loaded, and divine mercy as slow to build. But it's actually just the opposite. And And in the New Testament, we find that for fallen humans, it's reversed. We are to provoke one another to love. God doesn't need any provoking to love, only to anger. So, once again, we can see that the Bible is this one long attempt to deconstruct our natural vision of who God is. We don't think rightly about God. In his letter to the Romans, God's anger is being revealed against evil humans. And three times God says what it looks like. God hands people over to their destructive desires, even if it leads to death. But it also says that God is patient, giving people time to come to their senses and change. Remember, God's anger is a response to human evil, and it's based on his his deeper character traits, his compassion and his loyal love. 
God is not content to let people sit in their own self-destruction. God is on a mission to rescue. And this is why Jesus said that he was going to Jerusalem to die as a demonstration of God's love for his enemies. So when God is angry and he brings justice, it's because he's good and extremely patient, working out his plan to restore people to his love. And that's what it means to say that God is slow to anger. Next week, we'll look at the two remaining words in Exodus 34, and we'll also look at the other statements where God says that he will not leave the guilty unpunished. That's where it starts to get tricky, because what is it? Is God gracious and merciful, or is he vengeful and judgmental? How will we reconcile God's mercy and justice? Well, we won't. We'll let God do it for us. But just some closing thoughts this morning, based on what we've seen. Let me ask you this question. Whom do you perceive God to be? Particularly in your sin and in your suffering. Because that's when it's hardest. Who do you think God is? Not just on paper, but in the kind of person that you believe is hearing you when you pray. How does he feel about you? God's saving us is not cool and calculating. It's a matter of yearning. It's a matter of desire. God's desire is for you, not the Facebook you, not the you that you project to everyone around you, not the you that you wish that you were. God's yearning is for the real you, that you that's underneath everything that you present to others. The problem is that we have a perverse resistance to this. Out of God's heart flows mercy. Out of our heart, reluctance to receive it. We are the cool and calculating ones, not him. His arms are open. We're stiff-armed. Jeremiah 31 20 says regarding the heart of God for his people is Ephraim my dear son is he my darling child indeed as often as I have spoken against him I certainly still remember him therefore my heart yearns for him I will surely have mercy on him declares the Lord Our restrained view of God's heart might feel right because we're, we're being stern with ourselves, not letting ourselves off the hook too easily. And such sternness sometimes feels appropriate, appropriate to us. But um, this deflecting of God's yearning heart does not reflect the scripture's test about how God feels toward his own children. God, of course, is morally serious more than we are. But the Bible takes us by the hand and leads us out from under the feeling that God's heart for us wavers because of our, according to our loveliness. God's heart confounds our intuitions about who he is. 
the 17th century Puritan pastor Thomas Goodwin regarding this passage in Jeremiah 31 says this. Um, he, he deduces that if, if this is true about God, then how much more is this also true about Christ? Listen to what he says. This may afford us the strongest consolations and encouragement in the presence of many sins in our lives. There is comfort concerning such infirmities in that your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Christ takes part with you and is far from being provoked with you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yea, his pity is increased the more toward you as the heart of a father is to a child who has some loathsome disease. The greater the misery is, the more is the pity when the party is loved. Now of all miseries, sin is the greatest. And Christ will look upon it as such. How then does he respond to such ugliness in our lives? And he, loving your persons and hating only the sin, his hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin, to free you from it by its ruin and destruction. But his affection shall be the more drawn out to you. And this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Therefore, fear not. Sometimes we tend to separate our sins from our suffering. We are culpable for our sin after all, whereas our suffering, at least much of it, is simply what befalls us in a world ruined by the fall. And so we tend to have greater difficulty expecting God's gentle compassion toward our sins in the same way as toward our suffering. What our hearts are starving for is this yearning love of God for us, a love that remembers rather than forsakes, a love that isn't tied to our loveliness. Once again, quoting Dane Ortland, if Jeremiah's words, quote, my heart yearns for him, end quote, were to be dressed up in flesh, what would they look like? Well, it looks like a Middle Eastern carpenter restoring men's and women's dignity and humanity and health and conscience through healing and exorcisms and teaching and hugging and forgiving. And now we begin to see the resolution between the tension of divine justice and divine mercy rolling down through the entire Old Testament. Indictment and love justice and mercy. But the height, at the height of human history, justice was fully satisfied and mercy was fully poured out at the same time when the Father sent his eternal dear Son, his own darling child, to a Roman cross where God truly did speak against him. Where Jesus Christ poured out his blood, the innocent for the guilty, so that God could say of us, I remember him still, even 
as he forsook Jesus himself. On the cross, we see what God did to satisfy his yearnings for us. He went that far. He went all the way. We didn't meet him halfway. He went all the way. So how should we respond? Well, we should repent of our small thoughts about God. So the admonition from Scripture is repent and let him love you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your heart yearns for us. Father, we thank you that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Thank you that you show us through illustration after illustration, like the one we just looked at in Exodus 34, that even though your own children who ought to know better at times turn away from you and don't trust you, you woo us, you welcome us, you change us by showing us your goodness. Change us this morning by this word in Jesus' name. Amen.